This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is The Bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My sponsors for season three of One for the Road are the amazing Rock Sober, a brand established in 2017 and led by brothers Sean and Lee, who are both in recovery and on a shared mission to inspire and support recovering addicts worldwide. Injecting rock and roll into sobriety, Rock Sober offers merchandise and accessories to inspire and empower its community of sober badasses. The boys have recently launched a new range of alcohol-free beers which are taking the market by storm. Every beer purchased will help Rock Sober on their mission to support and inspire more people in recovery. Their message is clear, you don't need alcohol to have a good time. So let's all rock sober and remember the good times with Rock Sober AF Drinks. My guest today on One for the Road is an English journalist and author. One of her books, Woman of Substances, is an addiction memoir that uses her story of drug and alcohol use as a case study from which to explore the ways women experience mental health, trauma, eating disorders and addiction. She is also a board director of Smart Recovery in Australia. Please welcome... Jenny Valentish. So, hi, Jenny. Welcome to my episode of One for the Road. How are you? Well, it's actually your evening, isn't it? Yes. I've just come in from my Filipino stick fighting class, which is Mondays. Um, That's what I enjoy doing with my time these days. Now, drinking is not so big on the agenda. And yeah, it's about 9.07 p.m. Blimey, so you're in Melbourne, right? I'm just outside Melbourne. So yeah, Melbourne has just been released into the wild after having the longest lockdown in the world. 
and I'm because I'm just outside we were in it for a lot of it but not all of it um, but there's always videos going around of people standing on their balconies at midnight the other day when the lockdown was lifted and just screaming and cheering and yeah so it's a pretty high party mood here at the moment. I bet because um, when we came of lockdown it was a huge celebration but you know it's affected a lot of people and I've always said I think there's going to be a lot of mental health issues following on from this because I always um, remember a few years ago when at Christmas everyone was put together say Christmas Day, Boxing Day, the day after, and everyone had had enough of each other after three days. You know, everyone was falling out and that. And we've been over in the UK like 18 months in lockdown. It's affected a lot of businesses, a lot of mental health. But not only that, people's drinking has literally gone crazy, you know, because people are on Zoom meetings and they can get away with it after. But also, I think it's it's a bit similar to what a lot of mums who, who are stay-at-home mums experience which is you start to drink to break up the day more um and so I guess everyone's been put into that situation now yeah um, and then of course now that we're coming out the other end all the news articles and memes and that kind of stuff is all based around get on the beers yeah I know that's the sort of typical this celebrate thing isn't it but yeah. most people know by now on my podcast I'm quite nosy right so if you don't mind I would like to go back to when you was a child now I understand actually I found out and you can correct me but I think you grew up in around Epsom Downs where the famous horse racing grandstand is and I actually lived just down the road from there near Banstead and quite often, I used to get drunk around uh, Epsom Downs when the derby was on, derby day. And it was never, oh, let's just go along for the horse race. And it was a massive session. And we would start in the pub at 10 o'clock in the morning and get coached to the derby. And then end back at the pub in the evening, absolutely hammered. It was crazy. So you grew up there, right? <laughs> Maybe it had some kind of subliminal influence. Yeah. Um, I only lived there till I was five, so I do remember the races, but only from the point of view of lots of legs. Um, and then we moved to Slough, which is just a really disappointing town, you know, satellite town of London, though, at least. So Apologies to anyone who lived in Slough. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I think Ali G was in Slough as well. So Stains. Oh, Stains, that was it, yeah. So yeah. how was that for you growing up then? Not so good. It was it was a bit of a depressing town, but um, see, I was all focused on escapism from a very young age, like obsessed with America, for instance. I started speaking in an American accent, oh my God. And, and so escapism for me when I was a teenager, though, also meant getting on the train to Slough and I was allowed to go on Saturdays. So I used to fill up a body shop shampoo bottle with like a concoction of stuff from dad's drinks cabinet and just swig it on the train because I associated alcohol with freedom too and then by the time I got to Paddington station I'd already be quite wasted and then I'd just do like a circuit of the markets Camden market Kensington market Portobello market uh, and each stop I'd get progressively drunk until I'd sort of stagger home at only about 5 p.m <laughs> my parents would be wondering why I was so impaired it's probably the wrong thing to say but that sounds like quite a good day out actually <laughs> at the time except I was always on my own because I was a real loner and I think part of that was because nobody of course teenagers like to drink but not like that 
you know like you might drink if like that like swigging spirits if you were going to you know gig or something but not just to go out to the shops so I kind of uh, severed myself from, you know, normal teenage life in a way. And so I was on my own a lot. That's quite unusual to start with spirits, isn't it? Because I remember that um, I started with cans of lager, but I went to a, um, a disco um, and I think I was age 14 and got drunk on Crom de Month, I think, um, which <laughs> was vile. Um, but it did the job. And I think that put, and it's like a liqueur, isn't it? And I think that put me off spirits for a long time. Yeah. Well, so the first time I drank, I was 13 and my grandmother had just died. And we weren't that close, actually. But I knew there was something expected of me, you know, in terms of some emotional response or saying the right thing. And I just had no idea what to do. And my parents were off in different rooms, you know, my dad mourning, the mum somewhere else. And so I just went to the drinks cabinet where I'd see dad head straight to every day after work. He'd like come in, maybe put his briefcase down, go straight to the drinks cabinet. And then I'd be watching TV, but I could hear from behind me, like the scrape of a bottle on the shelf, the of the lid. Sorry if I'm triggering anyone. Um, and like the smell of whiskey and the smell of the wood varnish on the cupboard. And it all became quite fetishized. Yeah. And then the book, 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 book. Um, so I kind of knew what to do without even really thinking about it. Like, oh, here's a, here's a really uncomfortable situation. I know I'll go and drink. And so, yeah, I just put loads of different spirits into a glass and like and Shinzano and all sorts of horrible stuff. Southern comfort. <laughs> You've just brought back worst memories there. I think Dubonnet, do you remember that? No. Oh, it was like boot polish in a bottle, honestly. <laughs> but it's really interesting what you say there, because as adults now, I quite often do some work with Nakoa, right, um, around children of alcoholics and stuff. And these are all the things as adults we don't realise our children are noticing. So when you described the undoing of the lid and that is scary really, isn't it? Yeah. And also there was the knowledge that dad wasn't going to tackle me on it. I just instinctively knew that. So actually, as I kept getting busted, because my parents would realise I was blind drunk all the time, I was drinking every single day after school, mum would be the punisher and she would like hide the key. But first of all, I'd already managed to get a key cut. But even when they just realised that and they confiscated that, I just, you know, then I found it in dad's desk drawer and then they're like, oh, she's found it. And I just kept finding it because I was so determined. But dad's never tackled me on it. Um, in fact, one day he came from home from work early and I was sat on the lounge room floor, literally surrounded by bottles, like I was in the middle of a pentagram or something. And I heard his car in the drive and I was like, shit. And I was, I didn't have time to put them back in the cupboard. So I just rolled everything under the sofa and ran upstairs because we didn't have a very, I mean, he wasn't really hands-on dad, so we didn't have that kind of relationship we could ever have a conversation. So I was like, oh, this is like the worst case scenario where we're going to have to have a conversation. And I heard him come in and go straight to the cabinet, of course. And then there was this big pause. And then he went outside into the garden really loudly and started watering the garden. I ran back downstairs and I put all the bottles back and it was just never mentioned, which now I think maybe it would have been good to mention it. But at the time I was extremely grateful for. I know I've got lots of memories. I remember bunking off and my dad randomly came home, pulled into the drive and we all ran out the back door 
and we were smoking. So the room was filled with smoke. Mm. And as we got up, the ashtrays went flying and they all jumped over the back fence, but I couldn't get this girl over. So we hid in the shed and we could look for this little hole in the shed door. And I looked at my dad going, oh my God, like that. And I still cringe at the thought of how it was for him to come home to that. Like he couldn't even see the sofa. Do you know what I mean? It's terrible, isn't it? So you were 13 and al- already you were quite cunning then if you had a key cut. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> genius. Where did that yeah, go well, from there then? Well, uh, it, it just kept going. And, you know, as you get a little bit older, you can also get away with now perhaps choosing the right corner shop and being able to buy your own. There was talk when I was four, no, 15 of my mum said, look, there's this local charity or, or you know, whatever. Um, support group for teenagers with drug and alcohol problems do you want to go and I thought about it and I actually said yes but she changed her mind by that point and said no we don't want people to you know we don't want people knowing our dirty laundry and I took that really personally of course like she means me because um, I was actually sexually abused when I was younger and so that was kind of what was fueling all this like that kind of sense of shame so then not being able to talk about it with a professional because it was you know dirty laundry just sort of cemented everything yeah so uh yeah so I was kind of isolating not able to talk to them drinking too much for my peers and so becoming very very um siloed it's it's interesting I think when I talk to people about their childhoods how it does impact and that's what Gabor Mate talks about isn't it about their their trauma related stuff like I was 14 when mum left and she'd written me a letter and I, I was going to school actually and I, I didn't know anything and when I went downstairs for my breakfast the letter was where my bowl would normally be and opened it and it just said hi Dave just to let you know I'm leaving your father um, I will be in touch and I, I, I honestly I double took but then went to school and carried on but I think it was two or three days after that I really realised what was going on and then it yeah. didn't seem long at all that my dad met someone else and I didn't like her. She didn't like me at the time. And, and I felt so rejected. And I remember yeah. walking up the road, literally bawling my eyes out. And it wasn't yeah. long after that, that I started mixing with the wrong crowd and, and, you know, asking adults to buy us beer. Yeah. I don't even know where we got the money from, to be honest, but. Yeah. You find it, don't you? And you kind of, you, I don't know if you did, but I really hated myself and I hated everything else and I hated the world. And that anger really fuels drinking and drug use. You know, it really gives you this kind of righteous kind of wind at your heels. And and also, you know, I was talking about how shame is a really big thing for addiction, but so is betrayal. And what you've just described is betrayal, you know, and it cuts really, really deep, that stuff. Yeah, and, and do you know what? I think you're quite similar is I did everything to the extreme. So I would never think, Oh, I've had a couple of cans of fosters and I feel a bit tiddly. I would have to go to the extreme of pushing myself till I was almost sick. Yeah. And that was really interesting because that carried on in my adult life. You know, I, I, I was never the one to just think, Oh, I've got a hard day tomorrow. I'm going to just have a few and take, take the rest of the evening easy I would still and sometimes I would go even worse and, and push myself to the stream I'm going to get absolutely hammered to the extreme of actually I remember one Sunday 
um, I was doing the London Brighton bike ride and I drank <laughs> in a lock-in until half past four in the morning, right? And we were meeting at 7 a.m. to do Clapham to Brighton. And I actually um, rode into a hedge within the first five miles where I, I was just literally staring into space. And then when I looked up, the, all the bikes had stopped. I slammed my brakes and I went flying over the handlebars. But yeah. that was my mindset. It's really weird how some people can have that off switch. And I've, I think now we're talking, I don't think I've ever had it in from from 14 years old. Yeah. It's funny that you were doing a big bike race because my most recent book, Everything Harder Than Everyone Else, is about people who push their bodies to extremes. And the first chapter covers things like cycling and running. And for some reason, there's a huge crossover with people who've got who've had addictive pasts. You know, there's you know, the ultra running and long distance cycling can become really appealing, I guess, because it's it's quite meditative, it's endurance, it's grit, it's pushing yourself, it's self-flagellation. But some of my interviewees, like you, were actually doing both at once. Eventually, they became sober yeah, and became absolute leaders in endurance racing. But they did start when they were still getting wasted all the time. Do you think it's part of that all or nothing mentality that a lot of us have got? Yeah, I think there's a really fine line between endurance and hedonism. Yeah. Uh, and really hedonism to me when I was really like sitting up at the kitchen table or wherever still taking lines of speeds and still drinking neat spirits and, and having yet another cigarette trying to get them all to finish so I could go to bed but there'd always be something left on one of them that there was some like bloody-minded fascination with how far I was pushing my body and you know I'd feel like I could hear my lungs singeing or like you know this my body really doesn't need this extra tumbler of stuff yeah um and it's similar to the people in the book who who were just doing these extreme things like deathmatch wrestling and bare knuckle boxing. Like it's it's a fine line between endurance and hedonism. Hedonism can be really self-flagellating. Yeah. Now, I had lunch last week with someone I believe you interviewed, right? Now, this certain person made me take my trousers off in the middle of a London street to take a picture to compare our thighs. Now, I'm not small, right? I'm six foot, 17 stone, and reasonably muscular. And who we're talking about here is obviously Courtney Olsen, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the one and only. The one and only Courtney Olsen. And she was a pure delight, an absolutely wonderful person. I mean, talk about high energy. But Force of nature. Absolutely. But gentle as well, you know, I saw real vulnerability to her when we were talking, but she actually crushes melons, doesn't she? Watermelons. Her thighs, watermelons. And like, and now I've seen her thighs, I can see why. She used to do muscle fetish too, you know, where men would pay her to fireman carry them or bench press them or um, put them between, put their head between her legs until she took them unconscious. So those thighs have been put to great use over the years. <laughs> well, I didn't know that, and I'm glad I didn't know that. So really, <laughs> me taking my trousers off, I got away with lightly, really. <laughs> but let's talk about um, your book as well, Women of Substances, because um, I've ordered that now, uh, and it floats a lot of my boat when it comes to neuroscience and that. But I think it's uh, quite gender-specific, right? You talk a lot about women's addictions, and that really interests me, because I know a lot of my followers are women. 
um, yep. a lot of women listen to this podcast. So I'd love to delve into that. Yeah. So the hypothesis really, or like the through line is addiction and treatment are gendered. And I wouldn't have thought that. In fact, when I st- started writing it, that wasn't the hypothesis. I, I just thought I'll write about my story and do research around it. And I just happened to be a woman. But the more research I did, I was like, no, this is so gendered. Like the pathways into addiction are often gendered. There's often like sexual abuse, some kind of trauma. Um, Of course, this happens to men too. But, you know, of the professionals I interviewed, they said of their female clients, 70% to 99.9% variably, whoever I asked, have been sexually abused as children. So that's huge, right? And yet we don't really have trauma treatment, per se, within recovery treatment. And then once you are sort of in the throes of addiction, again, things look very different. Like for a woman, often there's going to be really awful sexual assault or coercion or, you know, if it's hard, if it's something like heroin, it could be where you're the one who's got to earn the money to score the heroin um, you're probably going to be the last on the needle because you've got the lowest social currency. Um, often there's like a comorbidity with eating disorders and, and self-harm, and that can be really dangerous. And then treatment is kind of still geared towards a more simplistic thing of like literally trying to dry you out and give you some great CBT tools and that kind of thing. Whereas actually there could be such complex trauma and still eating disorders that need to be, you know, unraveled. So Oh, and the whole fact that many women can't get to treatment at all because of childcare and funds, you know, so they're just completely falling between the cracks or there's shame involved. Like I've got kids, I don't admit that I'm using drugs, that kind of thing. So it's, it's so much more complicated than I'd realised. Yeah. And there's different scales as well, aren't there? Because I'm a grey area drinking coach and that that is a whole interesting subject that people are beginning to realise that maybe they fit into that bracket now. Because we've talked before and uh, I said to you that I was never a grey area drinker because I was binging every single night, seven days a week, where a grey area drinker might not drink every night. They might only have a couple of glasses of wine, but they find it hard to stay stopped. So, for instance, uh, if I said to someone, just give it up, you hardly drink. No, I could never do that because, you know, I, I like a glass of wine with dinner or when my friends come over, we open a bottle of Prosecco or whatever, you know. So there's a bigger bracket for people to relate to but as I said to you before it's mainly women and I from my perspective and this is only my opinion I think men go further with their drinking so I use me as an example if I was only drinking a couple of glasses of wine a night or a few beers here and there I wouldn't actually think I got a problem I, I genuinely would think I was a moderate drinker but then that could affect my whole night's sleep. That could affect my next day. It could affect my parenting. But as a man, I would think, actually, I'm fine. Because I've spoke to a lot of men and they say, I just have a few beers, mate, after work or in the pub or, or I'm watching the footy. But where women, they, they recognise it more as a problem because it's affecting their parenting, their sleep. And, and does that make sense? Yeah, but I think it's a bit simplistic. I think there would be a certain sector of men and women who recognize this just isn't a great lifestyle choice for me. And then of that sector, 
maybe women culturally uh, feel more able to seek help because women can more openly talk about mental health and that kind of thing. Women generally are more into coaching and that kind of life coaching and stuff. So I reckon you get the same kind of proportion of people who are in that grey area, men and women. And you, of course, got women who right, go right past that, like me and lots of people I knew who weren't moderate in the, in the slightest. So I reckon it's probably fairly equal. It's just that you're... I think women are more uh, open to coaching and self-help. Yeah, they're more open to, to recognising the problem as well. Because, um, again, my opinion that I, I can talk to you about anything you like, but when it came to my drinking, I couldn't talk to anyone because I was so ashamed of it. And, and I thought my conversation I had with myself was of extreme loathing because I thought, I'm better than this. Why, why is this controlling my life why can't I do anything about this you know and that was the constant conversation I didn't talk to anyone about my drinking no but why is that because it's past that point of people going oh maybe you should just blah blah and so it's you're in the too hard box nobody wants to talk about that kind of thing and also you've cut off normal people (laughs) I mean you haven't cut them off but if you're with them you kind of act more normal but then a lot of people that you wind up with are at that pointy end of the scale as well. And they don't want you to stop. Yeah. But is that not part of the shame and the stigma where if you were smoking too much, right? And you said, you know, I'm going to cut down smoking or I've been to the chemist and I'm going to try some patches. They would be saying to you, Oh, amazing. Well done. Or, do you know what? I'm I'm going to cut out sugar for a month. See how I feel. Well done. I'm not going to have caffeine for a month. Amazing. Alcohol so and drugs are so entrenched with your entire mental health and trauma history that it's not the same. Like they're not comparable, really. Like so, you can't have that conversation with people because to you, like alcohol and drugs at the time are the only prop. Okay, they're killing you and you hate them and it's an abusive relationship, but your need for them is so complex and they fill so many different roles for you. But you, you probably, I mean, that's why I didn't talk to people about it because how how could I stop? You know. How did you stop them? Because am I right in saying that you actually gave up for eight years? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So when I was 34, um, like I, I, it would go through peaks and troughs. Like sometimes I'd be in a fairly healthy relationship and it would get better. I'd still be a heavy drinker, but it wouldn't be a disaster and I'd be safe, most importantly, because I tended not to be safe because I would never think ahead and think that if you drink this entire half bottle of vodka and whatever you're going to drink at the pub you won't be able to get home <laughs> you're going to miss you're going to fall asleep in the night bus always got my purse nicked or you'll miss the night but you know whatever it is so um so yeah as I said I was 34 I didn't really want to roll with the punches anymore it wasn't like oh life's just a fantastic science experiment anymore it just feels increasingly pathetic doesn't it and um I tried all these things like I went to the doctor I was like crying I was saying I can't stop she put me on antidepressants, even though she said, you're not actually depressed, though. Um, I went to see a psychologist, went to see a hypnotist. And it was all actually just making it worse because I wasn't doing the one thing I needed to do, which is stop. And even the hypnotist said to me, I said, just make sure I only ever have two glasses of wine and not if it's any way work related. And he's like, this isn't going to work. You've <laughs> <laughs> actually got to want to stop if you don't want to stop. Yeah. I was like, no, no I don't really... Anyway, I had one really bad last night, awful night, night, and then woke up in the spare room. And ordinarily, I would always write down like snippets of conversation because my memory had been shot. 
right from the very beginning. I'd always get blackouts since I was a young teenager. Always have massive brownouts, they're called as well, aren't they? Where it's just patchy rather than an entire yeah. blackout. Um, so I'd always like write things down and I could look at it the next day and go, good. This particular day when I woke up, there was nothing on the paper and like nothing in my head. And I just knew that was really, really bad. And um, I just had this realization, like you've literally tried everything now, so you have to stop. And it was such a relief and I completely accepted it. So I was very lucky in that sense, because it's when people to some degree, even a tiny bit of them still wants to keep going, that they really struggle, I think. But I absolutely 100% wanted to stop. I didn't go to detox or rehab, but I went to AA, Smart Recovery, I went to see an addiction psychologist, read tons of books. Uh, and I've just worked on myself really hard for eight years. Around the five-year mark, I thought, I reckon I probably could start again. But then I thought, but why rock the boat? You know, like, if it's not, if it ain't broken, don't, what's the thing? <laughs> if it's not broken, I mean, that's not broken or something. Something like that. Um, Everyone's so screaming yeah. at the uh, <laughs> thing now. Oh, it's that. It's, don't break something that's not broken people write in no they can't can they um they yeah can just find. just scream along and tell us what it is if it ain't broke don't fix it that's it there we are we got there but so yeah after five years so did you start again then uh no i did after eight years eight years yeah and i was back in london so i was back in london you know going out with friends and uh we had cocktails and I kind of didn't mean to, but I did have one. And then I was like, you know, the really important thing to do here is just to chill out and not freak out. Because if you do, you'll start like heaping shame and blame on yourself. And that's when people get into real trouble and like go on a massive self-loathing bender. So I just didn't do that. And when I got back, I started seeing a, an addiction psychologist and I decided to moderate um and that was four years ago and it's actually gone really really well yeah that shows we're all different because I can honestly tell you that I had a very similar experience to you that I woke up one day and I just that was it for me I just knew and I think there was a lot of subliminal thinking going on before that you know I knew I couldn't moderate I tried that I would bring one bottle of wine home and share it uh and I would have three quarters of the bottle but that was worse for me because that was leading me up the garden path and slamming the door in my face because that, that was like, after that, I was like, I need more now. This is worse than yeah. if I didn't have a drink. So after a couple of three days, I would then start bringing more in, hiding it, which is even worse, you know. So this time around, when I stopped, I knew that had to be it. And there's no question for me, I will never drink again. I mean, people might say you don't know that but i do i do yeah i believe you yeah thank you because everything has changed for me like everything my health my i've got a career change i really enjoy life now i really do where before i was just looking down at the pavement all the time you know i was lying to myself to my wife to my family about um the quantities i was drinking i was I became so devious. So like when you had the key cut for his drinks cabinet, I spent my whole life being devious around alcohol. And it was like, I compare it to having a mistress in a, in a long-term marriage where, where it's something on the side and, and the mistress always wins because she came before so many things in my life, you know, yeah. and I'm free of that now. And the relief 
and the weight off my shoulders is incredible. And for yeah. me, I could never go back to that. I can't really explain this, but I used to be, you know, if I had one drink, there's no way I could stop at one. Same with cigarettes. It's just not the case anymore. And I know it's sort of drilled into us, especially if you go to 12 step for any periods that you can never, ever, ever have a drink again. I think some people can. I don't ever recommend it because I know some people can't. But I don't think it's necessarily as binary as we think. No, no, no. If you think it's the same find out then what yeah don't <laughs> no 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 I, I think it's you know in your heart what's right for you or not and quite often people say to me now um they do some coaching with me and then after six months I get a message and they say uh oh do you know what I had a couple of glasses of wine on Saturday and I stopped at that I think I've got a hold of this now and okay I I said okay well that's good but the devil in my head is going I'm telling you now that ain't going to work. Um, and then I get a message two or three weeks later saying, Dave, I'm in trouble again, you know? So I think it's quite rare, but you might have extremely strong willpower. You might just be wired that way. I don't think it's that rare. I think that though, if you are very much in a recovery community, you don't hear from those people again, really, because just you're very much in that kind of, bubble of sober people yeah true and and also I don't just work with people to get them sober you know I'm not absolutely anti-alcohol I believe you can have a reasonably healthy or normal relationship with alcohol but in my community that's not often the case I suppose is what I'm saying yeah yeah so the final chapter of women of substances was called choose your own adventure and it basically looks at harm minimization as being this spectrum, you know, so you've got abstinence at one end, you've got moderation at the other, particularly when you get into, you know, drugs like opiates, and then you've got these kind of replacement drugs that are, sometimes people will be on for decades because it's safer. So it kind of looks at, you know, what's best for you. Here are all the options. I'm certainly not going to tell you what to do. And I just sort of try to be as transparent as possible, but encourage people to look into the options. Yeah, I love that. Choose your own adventure because a lot of people know now that I don't actually call it my recovery I call it my discovery and that gives me a much sort of more positive brighter feeling about my future because I've taken my blinkers off because I I led such a narrow life because I thought about alcohol from the second I woke up to the second I was blotto basically and it dominated everything so now I look at discovery. I know I'm locking on a bit, but it, it feels my, my future is more positive because I've probably added a few years on my life. Don't even know if I would be alive now, to be honest, the amount I was yeah, yeah. drinking. I mean, look, it's so individual because like, I, I align with the biopsychosocial theory, okay? So that's that, you know, addiction is a combination of factors. It's, it's our biological makeup. And, you know, we've all got different kind of genetic markers and that kind of thing. Um, it's your environment, it's your peers, it's your family, it's trauma, it's your own kind of psychological makeup. And so it can't, you can't possibly say that what works for one person is going to work for the next person. So that's kind of what I try and get across. You know, I don't believe that addiction is a disease and I don't believe that addiction is about the drug. Obviously the drug's got a role to play. Yeah. But, you know, there is, 
the person was primed, ready for this drug to come along way before it came along. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting. I had a DNA test done uh, a few months ago, right? And and it was a full, like, it went into everything about my biological makeup, right? So it wasn't about what ancestors I've got. It was about my biological makeup. And it actually um, proved that one of my dopamine receptors is faulty, right? Um, now tell me what it's called. It's called something like R2-D2, but not that, because that's the actual drone in Star Wars, but it's quite a similar name. Yeah, I, I can put some links on the show notes, actually. Um, yeah, you've been writing about this recently. Yeah, the people that did it for me was um, Life Code GX or something, but I'll, I will put a link to them as well. And, and, it, and it found out, actually, that my one of my dopamine receptors was faulty, and there's a high chance that is why I drank so quickly because where someone would normally drink and they would get the dopamine hit from the alcohol and that would last them say an hour with me it wouldn't last at all so I would be constantly glugging alcohol like the clappers to to get that first high of the dopamine and when I found this out it really helped me to understand actually that it is part of my genetics to be a drinker yeah I found it. So it's the DRD2 gene that I'm thinking of, right? And yeah. what's interesting about it is it's also people with ADHD tend to have this gene as well. Yeah, now that's an interesting subject, isn't it? Because there were more and more adults now talking about ADHD diagnosis when they're older. I must know probably six, seven people that have been diagnosed. And I think I'm on the spectrum as well. And now they've been diagnosed and they've been treated for it, that their life is completely different. And I'm just wondering if like back in the day, there weren't such diagnosis, were there um, back then? And I wondered if that Definitely would make were. a difference. It depends what day you're talking about, but I definitely, because speed was my drug. And sometimes it would be that I had bought from a dealer, someone's ADHD medication. <laughs> so oh, really? Yeah. So definitely, you know, in the nineties, early two thousands, people were getting diagnosed for it but it wouldn't have been nearly as common, especially with women, because it's only now they're going, oh, yeah, I think this includes women too, but it looks different. So I got diagnosed with it when I was, ooh, um, maybe 40. Yeah. And I, I got diagnosed with it when I was writing Women with Substances. I was writing about what different kind of disorders people tend to self-medicate and what drugs they self-medicate with. And so ADHD came up and... I was doing, you know, looking at research about how it looks different in women. I was like, hang on, this checklist here is basically me. So I actually went and got an official diagnosis. And I thought, you know, now it's just quite interesting. But if I'd known this when I was 16 or even 24, uh, it would have been such a relief because I just despaired of myself. And I thought, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, you have no idea of etiquette. Like you piss people off all the time. You blurt stuff out. You're really impulsive. You never learn. And, uh, it would have been it would have been so valuable to know this. Of course, then I would have been very interested in getting the um, you know the prescribed speeds, but I was taking speed anyway. And at least they could have sort of had tabs on me if I'd gone down yeah. the official route. <laughs> Monitored it. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I mean, I've I've been on antidepressants for about five years, right? And I, I was on them when I was drinking. And when I went to the doctors, they weren't working uh, when I was drinking a hell of a lot right and he didn't actually ask me about my alcohol consumption the second time round. I said I don't think these are working for me and he doubled dose right 
I was in there for about two minutes. That completely messed me up. And that's when I had my disastrous rock bottom in Eastbourne that a lot of people know about. You know, four nights on the beach, swilling vodka after being in the pub all day. But recently, I went back on them because of lockdown. I was really struggling with my mental health. And I thought, you know, I've come off of these and I don't think I'm ready. You know, I'm not even three years sober yet. And I've just felt like my mental health was struggling, right? I went through the same process, didn't feel they were working. And then they doubled it again. And I was desperate then, Jenny. I was really desperate because I was really struggling, right? And I went mad again. But this time around, I didn't turn to alcohol and it proved to me how strong I am in my sobriety. And I had now a phone call from the doctor and they said, well, what we can do, we can uh, mix and match. You can take 50 milligrams one day, 100 the next. And I said, no, I, I know something is completely wrong. So she changed my medication, right? to something I don't even know but and and it was a 20 milligram dose and do you know what it's changed everything for me like in the last four or five weeks I've been like a different person I've been back to myself I'm a lot calmer I'm a lot more relaxed chilled I don't overreact and you know I it it goes to show that medication if things aren't right can be so important for you so with the ADHD, it's an important conversation, I think, because if you were diagnosed like when you were younger, things might have been slightly different for you. Yeah, definitely. And who knows whether they would have been like that free and easy with the medication or not, but at least it would have made me, it would have given me a framework with which to understand myself because I I didn't go and see a shrink till I was, I don't know, 31 or something because I thought, they're never going to understand. <laughs> it's too complicated. I thought it was such a snarled, complex mess. Whereas actually, I know now that within about four sentences, they would have gone, oh, yeah, because my story is pretty normal, really. You know, there's trauma and there's a certain set of trauma responses that, you know, people almost always go through. There's a certain kind of dysfunctional family relationship which a professional can suss out within seconds. So it just seemed incredibly complicated to me, but it wasn't. So it's a real shame, you know, as a an era when we didn't seek help as readily. Yeah, absolutely. So where are you today? What what have you got up your sleeve? Because um, you've done so many amazing things, honestly. It, it's fascinating to see what you've done. So you've written your fourth book now, right? which is the one about the people hitting people over the head with cactuses on sticks, which is interesting. Everything harder than everyone else. Yeah. Um, just um, to give you a reference point, because I won't know what you were talking about. That refers to deathmatch wrestling when people, yeah. when the wrestlers make all these home cobbled weapons, like, like a cactus, like strapped to a baseball bat. And our ultra marathon running and... Bodybuilding, like Courtney Olsen, yeah. she's yeah, yeah, yeah. Often people had an, a history of addiction. Uh, often a history of trauma as well but it wasn't on purpose I didn't find people on purpose who fit that just unsurprisingly happens to be the case you know when you're that kind of extreme personality so um, for me personally I'm just so into sport now like my entire life has been reprioritized everything's in a different order number one is training it's absolutely the new addiction but I'm absolutely fine with that so it's like Muay Thai pole dancing and this stick fighting uh, obsessed and then that kind of keeps you know my if I have a glass of wine or something that kind of pushes it right down the order of importance because there's no way 
I would ever want to hang over and, you know, be less than awesome. So that's my sort of, you know, pursuits. And then I'm starting a new book about older women and fitness. So it all ties in really. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to a place uh, in a couple of weeks called Unplugged Rest, right? Yeah. And it's a hut with like a wood burner in, a bed, a kettle and a toilet. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no mobile phone signal. And I'm spending three nights there to explore into my inner self because I've got a project coming up and I really want to dig deep into my psyche and how it was for me growing up. And I want to explore myself without any distractions like emails, kids, phones ringing and stuff. And I'm going to take your book with me and I'm I'm not going to touch it until I actually go there and I've got all that time to read your book, think about my life. You get a map, a compass to find. I don't think there's anything in sight for at least half an hour walk. Are you definitely allowed a book? Yeah, it's so... So it's not, um, I've been on a retreat before that you're not allowed to read because it distracts the mind. So this isn't like like a meditation retreat or anything like that. This is just a place you can go. And that's why it's called Unplugged. They actually put your phone in a box and padlock it. Just to, to, for some people who haven't got any willpower, but for me, it's going to be three nights of just tranquility obviously walking about getting lost with a compass because I'm terrible with directions, but I'm going to take your book woman of substances along with me because it looks fascinating. And I'm, I'm just so looking forward to that. And that's something I would have never done when I was drinking, but maybe, but I would have carted about 20 liters of vodka with me and just what's the point of that. So one man slumber party. (laughs) (laughs) So no doubt. Is it expensive? (laughs) It's not too expensive at all. It's just like, we'll put some cuts and no bed. And we won't give them any electricity and we'll charge him like $500 a month. No, 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 no. That defeats the object. It's lovely. It's absolutely lovely. It's really cosy in that. And it's more about, I think, so many people are addicted to technology these days. You know, do you know what? I was on a train the other day. Every single person was on their phones apart from one and she was reading a book and I wanted to go you know up what, to well, the other people could have been reading a book on Kindle I, I read tons of books on my phone okay all right clever clogs all right <laughs> they probably weren't they They're probably on Instagram well their thumb was going up and down like the clappers but anyway <laughs> um no I, I just think it's good to break that cycle because I can be just as bad at times I was awake at three o'clock this morning looking on Instagram and, and it's like ridiculous sometimes you know so it's going to give me an opportunity to to switch off from everything read your book and just find myself a little bit which sounds bizarre but I feel like that's a real necessary part of my journey now you know I just want to really own what path I'm on now but what path I was on before I feel like I need to reconnect with it I've got this real urge to reconnect with what's going on with me you know because otherwise it just all gets diverted away with million emails and stuff so that's what I'm doing definitely do some howling in the woods while you're there make the most of it (laughs) that why does that not surprise me that there's probably something you've done quite often I haven't but it's that whole Robert Bly thing of men going into the woods and like screaming and uh, yeah, like, it does sound quite fun, I have to say. 
No, I think I will do that. But Jenny, honestly, I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to put all the links to your books on the show notes, to your Instagram, and it's been an absolute joy. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're really generous. And um, I, I think your podcast is doing a really good thing. And so are you. Oh, thank you so much. Sure. And I believe that you're over early next year in the UK. Yeah, so. February, let's hang. Well, we can hang and we can go to the and howl like a pair of wolves. And, <laughs> you know, all okay, right. Fine. Take care, Jenny. Have a great evening. Speak soon. Speak soon. Bye. Bye. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms. And now you can subscribe to my new platform on Patreon, where you can watch the live unedited video recordings and you also get two bonus podcasts per month. The link is on my show notes. You can also find me on Instagram at SoberDave. And please don't forget to subscribe. And if you get a chance, please leave a review. Until then, have a great week and see you next time.